I want to do this morning is this. I want to talk about why the resurrection is so significant. Why it's so significant. Why is it that the cross finds its significance within the resurrection? And I think in order to do that, what we have to do is kind of get in the mind, so to speak, of of those first disciples, of those first followers and believers of Jesus. You see, to them, they did not view the cross the same way that we do. The cross to them was not a symbol of hope. It was not a symbol of forgiveness. It was not a symbol of freedom. The cross to them was a symbol of destruction. It was a symbol of, of punishment. The Roman government, they used the cross, crucifixion, to punish their enemies. What the cross said to the first disciples was this. We Romans are in power and you are not. And if you get in our way, we're going to obliterate you and we're going to do it pretty nastily too. There's nothing really exceptional about the cross. The Romans killed hundreds of thousands of people using crucifixion. So when the disciples saw that Jesus was going to the cross, it did not tell them that he was the Messiah. As a matter of fact, it told them the exact opposite. The crucifixion, the cross to the the disciples, to those first followers, what that meant was this, that they backed the wrong horse. They put their chips in the wrong pot. That the would-be Messiah would never succumb to the power and the authority of the Roman government. No, no. He would come and he would deliver them from the Roman government. He would defeat the Romans, not be defeated by them. And we know this because we find the disciples not present at the foot of Jesus' cross. There's only a few people. John, the disciple, you know, Jesus' mother. Where are the rest of them? They left. They scattered right? In the garden, when the Roman legion showed up, where the disciples do? Boom, got out of Dodge. See you later, Jesus. It's been great. It's been wonderful. Hasta luego. And there's Jesus. We also know that they weren't expecting resurrection because we find them after Jesus has died and, and he's in the tomb on the third day, they show up, some of the disciples and, and some of other Jesus' followers, they show up not to see if he's still there. No, no, no. They know he's there. They believe he's there because when you die, you die. Jesus told them he would be resurrected, but that wasn't even in their mindset. They didn't believe that. They show up with oils and spices to prepare the body. To That's what they did. They prepared the body for its long journey, its passageway through death. And they get there, and they see that there's an empty tomb. And their first thought is not, wow, Jesus was right. Their first thought is somebody stole the body, because that was pretty common then. Somebody stole it. And they wonder what's going on. And then you find Mary there and you see Jesus shows up to Mary and they begin to have a conversation. And Mary thinks, who are you? Are you the gardener? She says, somebody stole our Lord. And then Jesus, he said, no, 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 Mary, it's me. And then Jesus shows up at this house. And who's at this house? All the disciples. And what are they doing? They're hiding out. They're in fear. Why are they afraid? They're afraid that what the Romans did to Jesus is what the Romans are going to do to them. They're afraid of execution. So the cross to them, no, it was a sign that they missed it. That three and a half years of following Jesus was, was done. Their sacrifice, the struggle, the difficulty, they missed him. But the resurrection, when they saw the physical resurrected body of Jesus, not a spiritual resurrection. See, Jesus never said that he would resurrect spiritually. Jesus appeared to them physically. Jesus said he would bodily be resurrected within three days. And see, resurrection in that culture meant someone died, they would be bodily resurrected. They'd never seen it. They saw Jesus raise people from the dead, but they never saw somebody just walk out of a tomb. So it wasn't even in their mindset to believe that that really could happen. It's important because if Jesus would have just bodily, I mean spiritually resurrected, how would you you negate that claim? 
You know, you'd be like, that's like someone said when my grandma passed away and, um, and then I, she visited me in a dream. And you're like, you, you, you could say, well, that didn't happen, but you'd be a jerk, right? You'd be like, well, that's cool. I'm, I'm glad that happened. And maybe it did. But you wouldn't believe that her grandma or this person's grandma was physically alive. Where on the other hand, if this person said my grandma died and she came to my house the other day and knocked on the door and uh, asked me how I was doing, gave me her new cell phone number, showed me her new Facebook profile... <laughs> You know, then, then you've got some things that you can disprove. You can, you can have a conversation about that. See, Jesus said he was spiritually resurrected. There's nothing there. Nothing. Nobody can negate that. It's, it, it's a moot point. Anybody could say, well, he visited me in a dream, and you would be, you know, skeptical of that. So Jesus did not visit Mary, nor Peter, nor these disciples in the house in a vision. He visited them Physically. Physically. Paul would tell us that over 500 people saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, with their own eyes. The resurrection is so important because it is the resurrection that transforms their lives. It is the resurrection that inaugurates this thing we call Christianity. It is the resurrection why we are gathered here today. It's not the cross in and of itself or by itself. We're here today at Easter is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that if there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity, there's no gospel. It is the linchpin of what we believe. It is what kicks off this movement that has taken over the world called Christianity. It is those who believed in the resurrection that were burned at the stake and killed in the Colosseum during Nero's circus. Those who believed in the resurrection, not just simply crucifixion, the resurrection. It transformed their lives. The resurrection is what we must proclaim, is what we must talk about, because that inaugurates this new creation. Resurrection is new life. It's brand new. It is God starting a new creation and giving us a new life in the midst of the old. See, my train of thought says, why not do away with the old and then do something new? But God decides to inaugurate this new life, this new way of living, this new creation in the midst of the old. Jesus is resurrected in the same world that he was born into 33 years before. And he begins something brand new. And it's this transformation that takes place in his followers. And they go out. It's the, it's the central point. It is the, it is the centerpiece or the, the cornerstone of not just Christianity and the gospel, but of these people's lives. The resurrection is like this. Think of it in this way. Imagine one of the most prolific universities in, that we have in our country, Harvard or Yale or Princeton, Stanford, wherever, Dartmouth. In one of these universities, they are, they are given a, a, a beautiful, magnificent painting from Rembrandt or Picasso. It's a big painting. It's glorious, magnificent, worth who knows how much. The university, they, they search all, all over the campus. Where are we going to put this painting? How, how can we do it justice? Because they want to do it justice. They don't want to just throw it in a corner somewhere. The painting demands that, that it be the central piece of it. After they search the entire campus, they can't find a place where to put it. So what they decide to do is to deconstruct the entire campus, as beautiful as it is. They raise it to the ground. They rebuild the campus. But they make the centerpiece and the cornerstone of the campus this painting. They construct the whole thing around this painting. And what they discover after they reconstruct the beautiful campus is that the things that made the campus beautiful before are only enhanced by the centerpiece and the cornerstone that is this painting. See, that's what the resurrection is for us. It's not an add-on. It's not a bolt-on to our theology. It is the entire thing. And it demands that we build our life around it. Not that we add it on. 
I assert to you today that the resurrection is so important that it demands you build your life around it. Not only does it demand that you build your life around it, it's awesome. It empowers you to build your life around it. The question is, what are we building our life around? What are the the building blocks of the resurrection for us? What I want to do is I want to take a look at three people in the scripture who had an encounter, not with just Jesus, but the resurrected Jesus and what that did for them, how it transformed their lives, how it caused them to build their lives around the central piece and the cornerstone of the resurrection. The first one is Thomas. Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples. Thomas followed Jesus for three and a half years. Thomas has gotten a bad rap. He's, he's been given the nickname of what? Doubting Thomas. Nobody wants to be Thomas. Thomas, he, he was not even there the first day that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus comes to the house where all the disciples are. Thomas isn't there. As a matter of fact, he doesn't show up until eight days later. Not even there. I'm going to read you out of John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. This is one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But here's what Thomas says. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound on his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put, put, excuse me. Put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus said to him, You believe because you have seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. So Thomas, he, he, he doubts. He, he's not even there after Jesus dies and, and is resurrected. Whereas, yeah, we don't know. But I, I like Thomas because Thomas is real. He's telling the truth. I mean, he, he's skeptical, and rightfully so. He didn't just accept the fact that Jesus said he would be resurrected, nor did he believe the other guys that he traveled around with for three and a half years. He said, I won't believe unless I see the wounds in his hands inside. Not only that, I've got to touch them. Some of us say, well, I can't believe Thomas would be like that. But hey, you and I would be like that, right? I want to see it. I want to touch it, especially from the show me state, right? Show me. <laughs> Prove it to me. That's Thomas. And see, the disciples, they, they, they're there, and Jesus shows up the first time, and like, where's Thomas? And they're like, well, hey, it's Thomas ain't here. Like, they, stay, they tell him out. We're here. Right? Like, we kind of believe in you. We're afraid, but where's Thomas? Jesus returns eight days later, and there's Thomas. Without saying a word, without questioning Thomas, he walks right up to him, and he says, Thomas, here's my hands. Here's my side. Don't just look, but touch And after he does that, he says, stop being faithless. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He 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 expresses great faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, you're blessed because you believe because you've seen me. But blessed are those who will believe having never seen me. See, we're not like Thomas. We don't get the opportunity to touch Jesus, to see these wounds. I mean, I, I cannot prove to you physically that Jesus resurrected. There's an empty tomb. They've never found the body. Something happened that day historically. Over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. Something happened. Something that was so incredible, that was so powerful, that people were willing to be burned at the stake, were killed in Rome, were were persecuted and still being persecuted to this day. Something happened 
that day that was more than just a vision that somebody saw. These people believed, believed Jesus. They saw the physical body of Jesus. Thomas was a skeptic. I think we're all a skeptic to some degree. And what I love about this is that skeptics are not pushed to the side about Jesus. By Jesus. Jesus doesn't run away from them. Jesus doesn't ignore them. Jesus doesn't condemn them. He shows up to Thomas the skeptic and says, here's my hands. Here's my side. Touch it. And Thomas expresses great faith. What does Jesus give to Thomas? He gives to Thomas a new faith. The first thing the resurrection empowers us to do, to build our life around a new faith. And you have to understand, this is not some emotion that Thomas feels. This is not some warm feeling shifting around in Thomas. No, no, this is not just a belief. This is something completely different. True faith is this. Let me read it to you. Here's what Jesus does for Thomas and what he does for you and I. True faith is more than just an emotional feeling or a belief. It is a whole soul commitment to God. What is our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions? It is holistic. It encompasses every part of us. When Thomas sees Jesus and he touches, he believes, not feel. He doesn't feel the truth. I don't know about you. I don't feel truth very often. As a matter of fact, I I often think that the wrong thing feels more right than the right thing. Because I know what the wrong thing is going to cost me, or the right thing is going to cost me. There are times when I look back and I did the right thing and I'm thankful and I feel warm, but in the middle of it, I very rarely do I feel good or feel excited about doing the right thing. So truth is not a feeling. I'm afraid sometimes that's what we do. We communicate the gospel as this feel good feeling. If it feels good, then it's true. Paul said that the gospel is basically, it's an affront to people who aren't believing it. It's offensive at times. Why? Because it speaks against our pride. It's not a feeling. Thomas didn't respond out of a feeling. He responded out of a whole soul commitment, his mind, his will, and his emotions. Here's another way that we can describe this faith. It's like this. It's the full assurance and inner conviction that gives an individual the power to stake their lives on unseen realities. For you and I, Jesus Christ is an unseen reality. What I mean by that is he's not going to walk through these doors and let every single one of us touch his hands and his side. That's why he says to Thomas, hey, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who believe having never seen. That's why he gives us a new faith. See, Jesus is that faith. This is a faith that you can't produce, that you can't manufacture, that you don't have the ability to muster up or feel or sing enough songs. No, no, no. It is a faith deposited in you because of the resurrected Jesus. That it is, a, it is a full and inner conviction. It is a whole soul commitment. It, it, it consumes every part of you. It is faith that believes the resurrection, but a faith given to us by Jesus. He is that faith. He doesn't say just believe. He says hey, you should believe, but you need to understand I'm the one that is enabling you to believe. I'm empowering you to believe. It so impacted Thomas that Thomas would go to India and become the first missionary to India and die a martyr's death in India. He built his life around the resurrection. That faith erupted in him, consumed him, became the cornerstone and the centerpiece of his life. And that's what Jesus does for every single one of us, gives us the faith to believe in him, a new faith. 
It is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. There is an unseen reality in this world. And the unseen reality is God. It's Jesus and he gives us that faith to believe. The second story I want to take a look at is Peter. Peter was also a disciple. A bit different than Thomas. Peter didn't necessarily doubt. He took it one step further and just straight up said he didn't believe. He abandoned Jesus. He denied Jesus, right? Jesus told him that he would. And Peter said, no, I will never deny you, Lord. I love you more than any of these other disciples. That's Peter. He's bold. He's mouthy. He's impulsive. I like Peter because he wasn't passive aggressive. He was straight to the point. And he owned it. I will never deny you. And then what does he do? In the last days of Jesus' life, before he was resurrected, when he needed people the most, he denied him. People said, oh, hey, you're the, you're the guy that follows Jesus. You're that. And he says, no, I'm not. He angrily detests being known or being associated with Jesus. He does it three times. We know that Jesus appeared to Peter first after the resurrection. We don't know the conversation. Paul tells us that. Wouldn't you have liked to have been a fly on the wall? What is it that Jesus said to Peter after he was resurrected? We don't have that conversation. And I think it's obviously it's intentional. But we do have another conversation that Jesus had with Peter. John chapter 21. I'm going to read that to you. Verses 15 through 17. It says, After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus said. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I think it's easy to see why Jesus asked him the question three times because Peter denied him three times. See, Jesus has come to Peter because Peter has, has decided to go fishing. That's what Peter was. He was a fisherman before Jesus found him and called him. Even after this conversation that Jesus has with Peter decides, I'm going to go back and return to what I've always done. And Jesus shows up on the shore. Peter sees him from the boat. The Bible says he just jumps out of the boat and swims to Jesus. He didn't even wait for the boat to get back. That's Peter to the end. Impulsive. Swims. They clean the fish. They sit down over a fire and eat, and Jesus has this conversation. History would tell us that it's very possible that as Peter denied Jesus, he denied him over a, while there was a fire burning next to him. In that culture, they believe that if you're going to reinstate someone, if you're going to reconcile with them, you kind of recreate the scene. And you re- reconcile and recreate that scene with them. And Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? Now, the word that Jesus uses for love, in the Greek, there's four words for love. He uses the word agape which is this unconditional love, this selfless love. As Paul would describe it, it is a love that does not boast, that does not envy, that is not proud, that is, self, is not self-seeking, is patient, that always perseveres, always hopes, always builds up. Peter, do you love me? Peter responds not with agape, but with phileo, which is where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You know I love you like a brother. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Again, agape. Peter responds again, phileo. The third time Jesus says, okay, Peter, I'll come down to where you're at. Peter, do you love me? Phileo. Yes, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. What I find so interesting is is that Jesus does not show up on that shore to ask Peter, why did you deny me? 
And I, Peter, I want to make sure that you never do it again. What's wrong with you, bro? He doesn't do that. What does he do for Peter? He loves him. Despite the fact that when Jesus potentially needed Peter the most, Peter denied him. Peter walked away from him. Jesus loves him. Not only that, he challenges Peter to love too. Not only that, he empowers Peter to love. The love that Jesus displays for Peter, I want to read this this definition of, of what agape is. Here's the love. It is a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, immeasurable, incomparable, and given unreservedly to those who are undeserving. Peter was undeserving. Peter didn't deserve that kind of love because of what he did. But agape is fueled by this thing we call grace, the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. And so when Jesus sits before Peter, he says, Peter, I love you. And my love for you is not based on what you did. It is based on what I just did for you on the cross. And I didn't stay on that cross. The fact that I am resurrected means that I have inaugurated this new way of life that will be marked by love, not by revenge. You know, in this new way of life that we live, this resurrection life, it is marked by love. This selfless, unconditional, immeasurable, given unreservedly to those who don't deserve it. That's what this is. That's why Jesus said, they will know you by your love for one another. Those of us who call, call ourselves Christians, the world will know us by our love, not by our revenge. In, in resurrection life, there is no revenge. There's redemption. There's reconciliation. See, God decided to take revenge, to, to, to give Jesus the punishment that we deserve. On that cross, he died in our place. He died for us. He took that punishment on himself. God did not get revenge against humanity. God reconciled and redeemed humanity by taking that on himself. And when he was resurrected, he inaugurated this new way of life that says, you will be empowered to love. That's what the world is going to see, this new love that I've given you. Not that I've just called you to, but that I empower you to live in. What does it look like when you love people who do wrong to you? What is it? It's so disarming, isn't it? When people who do harm to you, you respond with love rather than revenge. And I get it. Revenge is what you want to do, but you seek redemption. You love them. That's why Peter said, hey, love covers a multitude of sins. Do you, do you think it's, a, it's just some crazy event that Peter is the one who writes love covers a multitude of sins? No, no, no. He sat there across that fire and he experienced love covering his multitude of sins. And he wrote that and says he loved me and he commissioned me and he sent me out to be a disciple. And Peter preached the gospel of resurrection. Incredible. Some of us think that because maybe we, we've walked away from God. We've walked away because of a series of events. Maybe because someone hurt you. Maybe because it was a church. Maybe there was a pastor who was representing God and they were, they were not you know, a morally upright person or they did something that hurt you and you walked away. Regardless of the reason that you walked away, I think some of us feel like this. We can't come back because we walked away. But we see this story. We see Jesus sitting with Peter. Jesus is not saying, why did you? walk away. Why did you deny me? No, Peter. Peter. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even call him Peter. He calls him Simon. Why is that interesting? That's Peter's real name. When Jesus met Peter, his name was Simon. And and Jesus gave him the name Peter, which meant rock and stone. 
Peter had great faith. At one point he said, Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are the Christ. And Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus called him Simon to remind him that Peter, the only reason that you're changed and transformed is because I found you and I called you and I went to that cross and I died for you and now I'm resurrected. I'm going to reconcile, redeem, reinstate, and commission you as Peter because I love you. It's love that believes the resurrection. And Thomas, it was faith, this new faith. And Peter, it's this new love that believes the resurrection. In that same way, we go out and we are empowered to love in this way that the world has never seen, that the world doesn't understand. We build our life around this love. They will know you by your love for one another. Peter would go and he would preach and he would be crucified and he would be crucified upside down. Why? Because he believed the resurrection and because he proclaimed it. That's the impact the resurrection had on him. The third story I want to share with you is Paul. Paul was not a disciple. Paul was not one who followed Jesus. As a matter of fact, Paul was, he was violently opposed to Jesus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, meaning this, he was one of the Pharisees of the Sadducees. He had in what we would call today, he had the equivalent of like two PhDs, very, very educated, very smart, very opposed to the person of Jesus. It's possible that he heard Jesus teach. When he was on this earth, it's very possible that he was one of the guys that spit in Jesus's face when he was on trial. It's possible. But Paul had made it his mission to kill Christians. Paul was one of the guys that was there shouting, crucify him, crucify him and rejoiced and was happy because of what happened to Jesus. After Jesus's death and these people start standing up saying, oh, we believe in the resurrection. Paul's going around and he's killing people. He's like a terrorist. Literally, hunting Christians down and killing them, stoning them to death, pushing them off the top of buildings, bashing their heads in, killing them. Why? Because they believe in the resurrection. They believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts chapter 9, we find him on his way to Damascus. He's on his way to Damascus to do what? Kill more Christians. Kill more people who believe in the resurrection. And he has this encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Acts 9, I want to read to you verses 3 through 6. Said as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So a trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Paul is on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. He has this encounter. It says a bright light shone. Some say he was riding a donkey. We don't know. All we know is that this, this encounter forced Paul to go blind. And what I find interesting is as he says, who are you? And what do you want me to do? What Paul does as he encounters Jesus is this. Is he asks two fundamental questions that the human heart longs to know. Who is God and what is my purpose? Who is God and what am I purpose? Paul's not a doubter. Paul's not a skeptic. Paul's a straight up anti person. He's, he's almost, you could almost say he's like an atheist. He believes in God, but he doesn't believe in Jesus. But he says, Who are you and what is my purpose? And not only that, he says, Who are you, Lord? Capital L, an expression of faith. 
Paul would be blind and, and he would go to this person's house named Ananias and Ananias would come, God sent him and pray for Ananias, pray for Paul and, and the scales would fall from his eyes and, and he would see and he would go on to become the greatest apostle that we've ever seen. He wrote two thirds of the, of the New Testament. He has arguably the greatest revelation of Jesus of anybody, but he was a, a strong opponent of Christianity, strong What we see happen here is that Jesus, his encounter with Jesus, Jesus gives Paul a renewed hope. Now, the hope that he gives Paul and the hope that we have today as Christ followers, it's a hope not based in uncertainty, but in certainty. See, we use hope based in uncertainty like, I hope it doesn't rain today. More importantly, I hope it doesn't snow today, right? I hope I can lose my love handles. I I hope... My spouse changes. I hope, whatever. And when we say, I hope, we have no certainty that thing we're hoping for is going to happen. It's a shot in the dark, right? I can't control the weather. It'll do what it'll do. And no matter how much I hope, it doesn't matter. But when we step back and we say, we have this hope, and for Paul, he had this hope, understanding right there. What is hope? Biblical hope is a confident expectation. Confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. It is confident. What is the confidence of this hope? The resurrection. Jesus Christ is this hope. So as as Christ followers, we have a hope that is rooted in Jesus. That's why Peter would say in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, he would say this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a what? A living hope. Say living hope. hope. Through the what? Resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is rooted in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, and he is a living hope, not a dead hope, not a historical hope, not a theoretical hope, but a living hope. Paul encountered the living hope on his way to do this, and he was fundamentally changed and transformed. Have you been to a funeral here recently? I go to more than you, and that's because it's my job. One of the things I say is, hey, we have hope. If you are here this today and, and you've lost this loved one and this friend, in, in Christ we have this hope that one day we will see them again. We say that and you're like, yeah, that makes me feel good. But it's true. There's a hope. There's a hope in this life that what I'm doing will extend beyond this life into the future, into the, the eternal hope that God has, the eternal life that we have with him. This is not the only life we will live. There is life beyond. That's the hope that we have. The life that is greater and fuller and more abundant and more satisfying. That's the hope we have in Jesus. It's the new creation. It's the new life inaugurated in the resurrection. And it's not just heaven. Hear me. If we're careful, all we talk about, the resurrection, heaven, heaven, heaven. Hey, heaven's great. But we're not waiting to get to heaven to do what God called us to do. Right? We're not called to escape this world. We're called to redeem this world through what? The resurrection, faith, hope, and love. We don't have, shouldn't have an escapist mentality. I'm, I'm glad to go to heaven, but I'm not wishing to get out of here right now because why? I found my purpose. I found my identity in what? The living hope of Jesus. That's what the resurrection equals for you. You will find your identity. You will find your purpose through the resurrection and the salvation of Jesus Christ. 
See, that some would tell us that there's no intelligence behind any of this, that we are the product of time plus chance plus matter. We're just random. And if that's true, none of this has meaning. If that's true, I wonder, where do I as a human being get value from? If there's no intelligent creator, if there's no loving creator, where do I get my value? And what does it tell me that I should value Johnny here? Why should I value him if there's no creator? Why should I value him if there's no, if there's no intelligence, if there's no plan, if there's no hope, if all of it just is random, then what does it matter? I don't know about you, but that's a hopeless way to live. But we believe because of the resurrection, hey, there is intelligence. And that intelligence is God. And he's the creator. And he has a plan. And God says that I have value and you have value inherently. That's why you should be kind. That's why you should have respect. That's why you should live a a morally upright life. Because there is meaning and purpose to this life. In the resurrection, Jesus was saying, I am God, and I am your purpose, I am your identity, and I give you faith, love, and hope. And it is a living hope. That's what the resurrection says to us. That is the centerpiece and the cornerstone of what we believe, that Jesus Christ is resurrected. He's not on the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. But if you separate the cross from the resurrection, you've got nothing. The cross and the resurrection find their significance in each other, and they are inextricably linked. My encouragement to you this morning is talk about the resurrection. Lift up the resurrection. When you preach the gospel to people, when you share it, talk about the resurrected Jesus, because that's what the first century believers did. We believe in Jesus who has been resurrected, that he's alive, alive today. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we say, all hail King Jesus, the one who died, the one who was buried, and the one who was resurrected and has given us faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is what? Love. Love. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I want to pray with you. Before I do that, I just want to give the opportunity, if anybody's here, to ask you if you need resurrection life. Because here's what I know. We're all facing situations, marriage situations, addictions, emotional problems, you know, psychological problems, whatever the case may be. And here's what I want to tell you. What you need in your life to be truly free is you need resurrection power, resurrection life. You need Jesus to restore your marriage. Hey, you can get counseling. You can seek out best practices. Nothing wrong with that. But more than that, you need resurrection life. You need that faith that hope and that love to explode in your heart and mind and will and emotions. The reason why we need that is is because of the fundamental premise of the gospel is that we are broken, that we are sinful, and there's nothing we can do to be good enough for God, and God isn't expecting us to because he knows that we can't. So instead of requiring so much from us, he sent his son Jesus to become broken, to become sin on that cross, to defeat death, sin, hell in the grave and then resurrected three days later so that we could have that life, that power, that faith, that hope, and that love. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what? I am broken. I am a sinner. I declare maybe I've been a doubter. I've been a skeptic. I've been like Paul. If you're here this morning, I I, I want to tell you grace 
salvation, resurrection life is available for you. If you're here, what I want you to do, I want you to raise your hand because I just want to pray with you. Say, I need resurrection life and power in my heart today, in my life. I want a new life. Raise your hand up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. What I want to do this morning is this. Thank you. I want to lead you all in a prayer. I'd like everyone to pray with me. Say, well, what does raising my hand and and saying a prayer do? Well, there's no magic potion here. It's all about belief, the faith that Jesus is giving you. What we do with our mouths, we confess that faith that he's given us. And that's what this is doing. It's saying, I believe in Jesus. I believe that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I confess who Jesus is. So repeat this after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the resurrection. Father, I'm, I'm, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. In this moment, I give you my brokenness. I give you my sin. I stop running. And I turn to you. And I receive the life of Jesus. The resurrection life of Jesus. The forgiveness, the faith, the hope, and the love. And I declare, Jesus, you are Lord. All hail, King Jesus.